opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB, Talk 860, and womentowatch.net. My name is Sue Rocco, and uh, I have a wonderful guest with me in the studio this afternoon. She is a local woman to Philadelphia. Uh, before we get started, two things. I want to be sure to give you our call-in number if you are listening and you'd like to join us on the show. We'd love to have you. You can dial 888 888- 329-3306. That's 888-329-3306 uh, for questions for my guest. And always be sure to visit our website uh, to see our lineup and everything related to Women to Watch at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. Now I'm happy to introduce my very special guest this afternoon. Her name is Fran Greising. Fran is the founder and managing member of Greising Law, which is a woman-owned and operated law firm based in Philadelphia with satellite offices in New York and Cincinnati. Fran, welcome to the show. Oh, Sue, thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I'm, I'm very thrilled that you could join me live in the studio. I always say that uh, I'm happy when my guest is face-to-face and not on the phone. And uh, it's wonderful to meet your uh, sidekick, Cheryl, as well. We'll give her a little shout-out. Um, so, listen, I want to talk about your career and, um, you know, a lot of your compl- uh, excuse me, accomplishments as a female attorney. But I want to start with your background and talk a little bit about some of the things that I think were probably very instrumental in uh, shaping who you are today. And I understand you grew up in Brooklyn and as the daughter of two immigrant parents. Tell me a little bit about those younger years and and what that was like. Uh, Well, it's interesting because when I lived in Brooklyn, I couldn't wait to get out. And now it's the coolest place to live, apparently, for young people. (laughs) It is. It's where my daughter works. My daughter (laughs) lives there. It did not feel cool then. I grew up in a part of Brooklyn that's called Canarsie, and it's near the water. Both of my parents were born in Poland near Bialystok, which is near the Russian border. My parents were essentially the same age, a year apart, but my mother came here when she was three years old, long before World War II, and my father came here after World War II, after spending time in a labor camp and being recruited slash drafted into the Russian army. So although both my parents were immigrants, they had very different perspectives in that my mother was raised in the United States and educated here, but my father didn't have those opportunities. Yes, so I understand your your dad was a Holocaust survivor. And my question for you is, did he talk to you when you were growing up about that, those times? Uh, the answer is no, <laughs> and it's interesting, but people who survived the war usually fell in two different categories. There were people who talked about it incessantly, parents who talked about it all the time, and parents who never talked about it. And I had a parent who did not talk about his experience at all, actually until very late in life. He didn't start talking about it until my mother passed away. And she passed away about 10 years ago, and he lived eight years longer than she did. So 
He didn't bring it up at all until then. Hmm. Why, do you, why do you think that is? I think when my mother passed away, he did not think that he was going to have that many years ahead of him. He passed When he passed away, he was 93. So I think he thought his passing was soon, and he had never shared any of his experience with us. So he began to open up almost immediately after my mother died. I remember in the first weeks he started talking about it. I also think he was prompted because my daughter was then a senior in high school, and she was doing a project about the impact of the Holocaust on the next generation, not mm. my generation, but her generation. <clears throat> and she kept pushing him for information, and he was much more forthcoming with her than he had ever been with us. So that's not surprising. Something yeah. about grandparents yeah. talking to their grandchildren, and they, they tend to be a little bit more open. Uh, what would you say most surprised you about your dad when he was sharing those stories? That he was very upbeat about it. A lot of people who go through that kind of experience are really depressed, and clearly they have, many of them have post-traumatic stress, stress syndrome, which I'm sure in many ways he did, but his attitude was totally positive. There was no complaining or hand-wringing or regret. It was, I've had a good life, and I'm happy for what I have now, and totally positive, and wow. I was surprised by that. Wow, that's that's remarkable. Um, Tell me what mom and dad's messages were to you uh, growing up as far as work ethic. Uh, well, they both worked very hard. My mother, unusual for the time, I felt. My mother started to go back to work when I was about seven years old. She worked full time from that point on, and most of my friends' mothers were home. And my father worked really hard at a physically demanding job, which was sort of unusual because he was very intellectual, but because of the war, he had limited education, and by the time he got here, he was in his late 20s, so he didn't have the opportunity to have the kind of education that would have tapped his abilities in that way. So my father actually was an ornamental iron worker, and what that means is he was working on skyscrapers in New York City, building elevators, escalators, outside ornamentation, and the like, which was a very physically demanding job. And uh, it came from the fact that his family had been blacksmiths in Poland. Oh, and wow. this was just a logical continuation of that, I guess. So he worked very hard at a physically demanding job, which didn't necessarily use his intellect in the way he might have liked. And my mother, who had been educated here but only had a little bit of college, she didn't uh, continue her college education because she needed to work full time. My mother worked really long hours also. So both of my parents worked long hours, got up really early in the morning, came home late, and because of where we lived in New York, they both, each of them had to take a bus and a subway to get to work each wow. day and wow. back. So their commutes in each direction were over an hour. So we saw how hard it was for them, and it was clear from that that we were going to have to work hard, but we were going to try to work at something that wasn't as physically draining as what they right. were doing. You know, you and I had a conversation a month ago maybe or a couple weeks ago and um, I know that education was very very important uh, to your parents and it's fun I think you see that a lot in immigrants who come to this country and want something different for their children tell me how that inf those conversations influenced you and your drive to um, not only go to college but go to law school uh, well there was no question that we were going to go to professional school my brother and I my brother happens to be a lawyer in New York also, and it's not a coincidence, there was a very high expectation that we would 
be professionals in some way and that we would have education beyond college. And when we were growing up for our parents, they had a pretty limited view about what those choices were. And they really did think that we either had to be doctors or lawyers. That, that, you know, you hear people joking about that, but that was the truth. <laughs> and I remember being very young, younger than 10 years old, and the Sunday paper came and I was sitting on the living room floor, flipping through the magazine section. It was an article about women doctors in Russia. And I remember talking to my parents about it, and I remember the sort of the pressure that I felt from them that that was the sort of thing I should be doing. And I knew then I was too squeamish for that. So it was almost <laughs> like process of elimination, pick door one or door two, and I had to go to the other door. Uh, but the reality is that my parents kind of pegged that I would end up being a lawyer. My father in particular used to call me the judge when I was a very young child. And when I asked him about it later, why did you call me the judge? He said it was because I was always reading. And he associated the fact that I was always reading a book, reading the newspaper, reading something, even as a very young child, with being a lawyer or being a judge for some reason. So, yeah. Well, that was probably very beneficial in getting <laughs> through law school because the amount of reading is, is unbelievable. Yes, it is. So I'm glad I don't have to do it again. Yeah. Can you talk about your high school years and what kinds of activities you were involved in? Well, it may be surprising, but I was a cheerleader, among other things. I was a dancer and a choreographer in high school. And in New York in particular, there was this process they had in high schools where every grade competed against the other grades once a year in a massive performance. And many students participated in that. It was called Sing, and it was very popular. And it was certainly, if you didn't do it, you missed out on a lot of social life. So I was involved in Sing every year and began as a dancer and then became the class choreographer. So those were some of the things I did that had nothing to do with academics, but were great yeah. and fun um, and really gave me some balance. And then I studied a lot, probably a lot more than most other people because I was expected to. So I did what I was, I always did what I was supposed to until I became much older. <laughs> then you decided you were gonna shake things up a little bit. Um, tell me, um, you, you, first of all, I wanted to talk about the fact that you work with your daughter, Emily, mm -hmm. and, and there's probably a dynamic to that, that that's interesting. What, what is your experience working with your daughter? Uh, I think that we would both say it's really great and also really challenging because when we're working, we don't really act like mother and daughter. We really act like colleagues. And um, I think it, the dynamic is different in that there's much more advice coming from Emily towards me in the work relationship than there is in the parent-child relationship. She's one of my advisors. So that's a fascinating uh, thing to experience when your child is taking care of you and you, you are no longer the principal one taking care of them. Yeah. Uh, in addition, I think the, the genesis of her working with me came from Emily. She had a lot of background in marketing and advertising here in Philadelphia and in New York but she was really keen on my mission, and she proposed that she come and join us to further uh, promote the mission, and it's been a, a very good fit. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, you've spoken about kind of the transition from your upbringing in the neighborhood and where you grew up and going to the what we call the Big Apple. Tell me what that was like for you, um, becoming acclimated to to the city? Sure. Um, I grew up in Brooklyn, which is part of New York City, and spent a lot of time growing up going into the city for Radio City Music Hall and the Rockettes and going to museums, that sort of thing. But I didn't live in the city until I was out of law school. 
and it's sort of ironic, but my law office on, at a Wall Street law firm was only about a 20-minute drive from my parents' home. But every time I'd cross over the bridge or th- through the tunnel from New York City, from Manhattan to Brooklyn or the reverse, I literally used to feel like I was crossing the Atlantic and I was going either back to the shtetl or from the shtetl to the mainland <laughs> or something like to the Holy Land or whatever it was. It was just such a weird um, thing because they were so close. But the life experience I had in each place was dramatically different. Um, and for me, one of the memories that most exemplifies how big a distance it was for me, those 20 minutes, was that uh, you know now certain kinds of food that we all eat are ubiquitous, but when we were growing up, you couldn't get everything at the supermarket. It wasn't like today. So I remember some of my early meals at my workplace were really um, unusual for me in that, for example, I had never eaten a fresh raspberry until I became a lawyer and was working at a Wall Street law firm. <laughs> I had, what is this? <laughs> I had never had a scallop. I had never had curry. And it really was, you know, I had lived in a very small world. And yeah. it was really a big opportunity in that way and in lots of other ways to work at a Wall Street law firm that was world-renowned at the time mm. and still is, actually. Yeah. Um, Tell me, um, how did you land your first job? You went to Penn yes, Law I did. School. Mm-hmm. Tell me how you landed that very first job uh, at a Penn. Um, well, uh, Penn has a really very refined recruiting and uh, placement process, which they had that then and they still have now. And Penn does a phenomenal job, actually, of placing its law students in jobs right out of law school. It's not quite 100%, but it's pretty close to that in terms of their placement statistics. So there's something called on-campus recruiting, and it works differently now than it did that many years ago because I graduated in 81, so I was doing this in the late 70s. Um, Now it's probably got much more computer involvement, but at the time, there would be a list of law firms that were coming to the law school during certain periods of time, and if you wanted them to interview you on campus, you put your your resume in the envelope on a cert- on a desk, and then they were sent to the law firm, and the law firm would determine from the resumes in the envelope who they were willing to interview, and then when they came to campus, if they chose to interview you, they would. So I worked at a law firm in New York called Sullivan & Cromwell. It's It was then and continues to be a really amazing firm, and they chose to interview me when they came on campus, and they were one of the firms I interviewed with, but uh, I felt they were certainly the most... Um, impressive and interesting firm I interviewed with. And so when they made me the offer to come for the summer, after my second year of law school, I took it. They offered me a job at the end of the summer, a permanent job, and I took that because it was a big deal um, for me at the time. And that's where I spent the first several years of my career. At that time, did you have aspirations in your mind that one day I will have my own firm, I will work for myself, or were you just kind of open to, to what opportunities are out there? I never, ever thought I would have my own firm until I had it. So it was ne- it was not a goal at all. I think that I didn't think that far ahead about mm-hmm. it. Um, traditionally for law, schools, law students at that time, you hoped that you'd go to a law firm, you'd be there eight to 10 years, and they'd make you a partner, and you'd live happily ever after. And for my generation and for generations that have lawyers that have come after, that's been less the case than it was historically. But realistically, for women lawyers at that time, that wasn't something you should expect, uh, and I don't think I expected it. And the reason I say that is I started at Sullivan 
1981, and half the people starting that year were women. But of the lawyers who were already there, the most senior woman at the firm at the time had maybe four or five years of experience, a handful of years of experience. There were were no women partners when I started. Mm -hmm. And the first women who did become partner while I was there, none of them had children. So for me, knowing that I did want a family, it wasn't realistic to assume that I would have a family, become a partner, stay there. It just wasn't likely. And um, I got amazing experience there, but I had a pretty good idea that that wasn't going to be the last stop. Yeah. Can you talk about an experience you may have had at that time um, where you were perhaps the only woman in the room um, and how you handled those situations? Uh, I'm not sure how well I handled them. I'll start by saying that. And um, there are a number of reasons for that. I not only had the fact that I might be the only woman in the room, but I also might be the only person in the room who was first generation. I might be the only person in the room who had not gone to Harvard. Um, there were a lot of ways in which I might be different than the the majority of people in a particular meeting. But which I also, we know today is a good thing. Uh, yeah, that's well, called diversity. Yeah, right. But it, I'm not, and I'm not sure it wasn't a good thing then. But I don't yeah. know if I appreciated that it yeah. was a good thing. Yeah. Also, I mean, you you see me. I'm sitting across from you, but I. I'm just under five feet tall, so I also was usually the smallest person in the room. (laughs) And I also had skipped um, in school so that I was also younger than most people right out of law school. So I had a lot of things that made it possibly more challenging. But um, one of the things I did to try to compensate for feeling like I wasn't like everyone else in the room was to try to be better prepared for everything and be perfect, which is impossible, but I certainly tried. Um, I would get up really early in the morning, often 5, 5.30 in the morning, and I would exercise every day so I'd be like strong and fit. And then I'd try to get to the office really early in the morning, which is, by the way, very unusual in New York law firms. Lots of people, at least then, used to come in at 9.30, 10, 10.30. Is that right? That's surprising. Yeah. And I people would that. work very late at night. Yes. Oh, okay. Yes. Later and later. So, but I would try to come in at like seven because it was quiet and I could get more work done. And also because I preferred to leave earlier, although I still didn't often get to do that. So I just would try to compensate for the ways in which I felt like an outsider, perhaps, by working as hard as I could and probably over-preparing. That's Mm -hmm. the way I would describe it. So I want to talk to you about confidence and mm-hmm. self-esteem. So during those years, you're working hard. I, I would say more to um, be noticed, right, for your for your work than maybe fitting in with the group. But, you know, it takes a certain level of confidence to even get to that point. So would you say your confidence has built over the years and grown and grown, or was it something that you were, you know, kind of grooming back then and had um, and we're just trying to, you know, kind of keep up with that workload. I would say a little bit of both. I think the reason I worked as hard as I did was mostly to make sure I didn't make a mistake. <laughs> because when lawyers make a mistake, there's pretty significant consequences. So I think I was definitely motivated by not wanting to make a mistake, not wanting to appear unprepared, not wanting to appear not smart enough. I think that was what motivated me earlier on. I don't think there's any question that I'm more confident now, Mm. you know, 36 years later than I was starting out, and I think that would be the case for most people. Mm -hmm. Um, But I did have one thing that I think helped me, 
I think because I grew up in the home I grew up in with the kind of parents I grew up in, particularly a father who had survived the war and had a certain level of determination, I felt as a result, I, I always felt that I could do anything mm. I wanted to if I wanted to do it badly enough. Mm. So even when I felt like other people in the room went to Harvard or they were men and they were six feet tall or they knew what a raspberry tasted like and I didn't, <laughs> whatever it was that would distinguish me from them, um, I still felt like if I made up my mind I could do it, I then could do it. And I think that is what got me through it every phase and I think it is what I fall back on now. Mm. I think it's interesting that you, um, that you talk about you know that you weren't you didn't come from Harvard but you went to Penn, <laughs> which is a very very difficult school to get through. Um, I think there's it's always interesting this this level of um, comparison or pressure mm -hmm. right that I think young in particular women uh, law students place on themselves. Where do you think that came from? That you would in other words you would still be feeling as though you know you were different from the group but look what you had accomplished well it's interesting because at the particular law firm where i worked uh, if you looked at any incoming class of lawyers there were more people who had gone to harvard either undergrad or law school or yale um, than probably the other schools that just that was the kind of place it was mm -hmm. so and there were many many people there who had clerked for supreme court justices so it really was a particularly elite environment, and there were not that many people actually who had gone to Penn Law School there. It was a small number. So in that environment, um, it wasn't the most um, powerful credential academically that you could have, and I certainly felt that you felt that. Uh, but then you add to it that there's virtually no women ahead of you, no role models to look at. That makes it even tougher because you, I saw women taking themselves off the path earlier in their careers than men were, and that's just what was happening. Yeah. Um, one of the things I read was your goal in starting your own firm, which, by the way, you, start, you launched in 2010, mm -hmm. which was, um, it was a rough economic period, and um, so you launched Grising Law with a um, small group of clients, and um, today you have a team of over 20, I believe. Um, um, yes, 20 right? people. Mm -hmm. And um, first I wanted to ask you, what is one word that describes you that allowed you to take a chance like that? I'm passionate. <laughs> passionate, I would say. About, and it, was it about creating a place where, I, I read, I love what you said, um, you believe that the women can um, be successful, extremely successful, but at the same time happy in their work, and you wanted to create that kind of a place. So first I wanted to ask you, you know, what was that main goal? What was the passion behind that? And were you unhappy in your, in your previous career? Um, you know, it's interesting. I don't know um, what was the passion, except maybe I was crazy because it was a bad economic time. I think that I always felt in, in throughout my legal career that I was torn between the qualities I felt were very feminine and maternal and the qualities that seemed to be the most ideal to succeed in business or in law. And they often, for me, felt like they were two sides of me that were maybe inconsistent and almost 
in a tug Conflict. of war. Yeah. And maybe that's because I'm Gemini, if you believe in those things. So the twins are two different sides. And maybe that's what it is, if you, if you believe in that. But I always felt this push and pull at every phase of my career. And although I could attribute it to external factors, I think if I'm realistic, looking back, a lot of it was internal. You know, torn between my responsibilities as a wife and mother, my responsibilities to clients. They, you can't have it all at the same time. So I wanted to create a place where lawyers, particularly women, could thrive and be as successful as they wanted to be as they defined it. And that was really the key, as, as the individual lawyers defined it. And the reason for that is because there's no right or wrong about whether you stay home with your children or you don't stay home with your children. You work part-time or you work full-time. Everybody has to make those decisions for their own family, their own lives. But the reality is, from my perspective, you cannot be the best at being a wife, a, a mother, if that's what you want, a homemaker, and be the best at being the ultimate lawyer in the on the biggest cases or the biggest deals because both of them require your full attention mm. so if you're you, if you're going to try to be amazing at both something's going to give and usually it's yourself or your health and someone's going to be disappointed so I wanted to create a culture in which you there wasn't disappointment about someone's professional ability or commitment if they chose to devote more time at home or if they if that's what they want to do for that phase of their life and that's a very hard thing realistically to accomplish in any big institution, no matter how flexible the institution is. And I wanted to try to counter that. Yeah, I would say that carries across any industry, really, when we talk about mm -hmm. women. And, and we talk often on the show about this pull to be someone other than ourselves when we are working outside of the home. Did you have that, you know, where you felt like you were not being your authentic self, trying to fit in with the men in, in masculine ways. Uh, yeah, although I don't think I was ever very good at fitting in that way. Um, and when I think I was, I think they thought I was too forceful and too assertive and too pushy. Um, and uh, I'm not sure that served me well. Uh, but yeah, it's the, the traits that make you very successful in most traditional uh, law practice scenarios, whether it's at a law firm or a company or in government, are traits that uh, that require incredible commitment and focus. And that means that there's uncertain hours and emergencies and weekend calls and late night sitting at your desk alone, that sort of thing. That's very hard if you have a family at home. Or for that matter, if you have other interests. I think it's hard if you want to take if you have aging parents you need to care for. It mm. doesn't have to be children, but but generally speaking, the nurturing side of a person and the driven professional side of a person clash and they clash particularly I think in a lot of legal settings. Mm. Um, you've spent some time as an advisor to some very high um, or top executives I'll say across multiple industries. Is Can you talk about the experience you have when advising men versus women and their um, acceptance of, of your guidance? At this point in my career, I would say there's no difference. I don't find that women are more likely to follow my advice than men. In fact, often the contrary at this point in my career. But I have 36 years of experience, and I think I've built up credibility. And generally speaking, I don't find a disparity. I found that the 
older I got, the more experience I had, and the more I presented as an experienced lawyer, the less and less that became an issue. But I, the reality is I think often women don't trust women advisors either, um, not necessarily any more than men do. That's, that's what I have found. Yeah. Have you ever had any political aspirations? Uh, no. <laughs> Adamant. <laughs> no, and no. Um, you know I've had a lot of opportunity to to see political situations up front. One because I represented a lot of government entities, but as you know, I worked for Ed Rendell when he was mayor of Philadelphia, and in fact, I know your brother through that uh, role. He worked there too, only before I did. Um, and I also worked for two members of Congress when I was younger. Bella Abzug, who was a congresswoman from New York, most known for her big hats. And I worked for Congressman Charlie Rangel, who is, uh, was the congressman for the Upper West Side of New York, Morningside Heights and Harlem. And he's a very well-known congressman as well. I worked for both of them. And I worked for Ed Rendell. And I never wanted any of their jobs. No. <laughs> you had a very inside look at you know, what their day-to-day -day was. And uh, yeah, and I would say, I mean, using Ed Rendell as an example, because people around here would certainly uh, be familiar with him, mm -hmm. uh, he's a very extroverted, gregarious person, and my natural instinct is actually to be introspective and not as openly outgoing and not as social. So for me, being on all the time would take away from the time I need, the way I'm wired, I need to reflect. Mm. That's interesting, and it wouldn't feel. Although, do you think it's a it's a requirement um, for for a politician to have that outgoing, gregarious personality? I think there are many people in office who don't, yeah. um, and seem more um, introspective to me. Although mm -hmm. I don't know them personally, so I'm not sure that's right. Um, I perceive uh, Senator Casey to be that way, but I could be wrong because I don't know him. Um, I per perceive him to be very thoughtful and introspective. But uh, I don't know if it's necessary, but I think that it's an, a big asset in this, um, in this region. So I think you can't be the mayor of Philadelphia and be, let me say, effective and successful and well-liked by your constituents if you don't have some of that. And I'm not sure that I would... Uh, be able to sustain it and I, it's definitely never been a goal yeah so I, I'm asking because of course we want more more women <laughs> we want more women running but um yeah I understand that um listen we're going to take a quick break for our sponsors when we come back I want to talk a little bit about um the speaking that you do and if you could share like, one of the lessons that you enjoy sharing most with audiences okay. we'll be right back thanks This is Kristen Hillsley, financial advisor of the Foley Hillsley Group, with a big announcement. Last fall, I hosted a women's lifestyle conference to help the women who do it all take control of their finances. Now I'm excited to announce a new partnership with Women to Watch Media to help show women how to own their financial future. We'll have newsletter articles, blog posts, announcements of live events, and a lot more, all available at womentowatch.net and our own website. FoleyHillsleyGroup.com. I'm thrilled about this new partnership, and I look forward to being your resource for all things financial. Stay tuned to learn more or visit our website at FoleyHillsleyGroup.com. The Foley Hillsley Group is affiliated with Robert W. Baird & Company, member SIPC. 
Log on to FollyHillsleyGroup.com to learn more. That's F-O-L-E-Y-H-I-L-L-S-L-E-Y Group.com. Or call 610-238-6636. Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB, Talk 860, and net. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm joined this afternoon by Fran Greising. She, again, is the founder and managing member of Greising Law, which is a woman-owned and operated law firm here in Philadelphia. We love that. And um, I, you know, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about um, the speaking that you do. I know you're asked to speak on a regular basis. You write, you speak, you advise. I'm sure one of those is probably more your favorite, something you enjoy more. And I'll ask you which one of those um, is. But also, when you do have an opportunity to stand in front of an audience, is there a lesson in your life or a part of your life story that you um, that you like to share? Uh, there's probably several, but I think the thing that I like to talk about the most is perseverance, determination. Uh, grit has become a very popular word lately, uh, especially associated with women lawyers. Growing up the way I did, particularly with parents who are immigrants, particularly without a lot of luxuries, I didn't have everything that I could provide to my family when I grew up. Um, I think. I am driven by and try to teach other people to not give up no matter what, no matter how hard it gets, and also to take charge of your own career and your own life. I think if there was a lesson I didn't learn early enough or didn't believe early enough was that I was in charge of my own career. Starting out at big organizations, you're one of many people, there's a whole track you're on, and I think you expect people to come and grab you and help you along, but that's not the way it usually works, at least not for women, at least not when I was coming up the ranks. You have to take charge of your own career, and I really try to push that for other women. Take charge of your own career and keep going back and looking at what you're doing and what you're going to be doing next and put it on yourself to make it happen. Don't expect someone to come rescue you. So... Tell me what you say to yourself in those moments of second guessing, because we all have that even, right, no matter what level of success you have achieved, sometimes there's a fork in the road and you have to make a choice and we don't always make the right one. So what's your message to yourself to help you get through those uh, moments and keep going? Uh, One of the things I try to do is no longer blame myself if something goes wrong or think that it means that I'm a failure across the board. Instead, I try to think about the times when I had other obstacles and I overcame them, or eventually they worked out. And what I have found that is sooner or later, 
everything will work out. It may not work out the way you planned, the way you hoped, but you'll get through it and you'll be on the other side of it. And for the most part, that's the truth, unless it's something, for example, related to your health that you you ultimately can't control. So Mm -hmm. I try to focus on the positive things I've accomplished and the negative ones that are now behind me, (laughs) I try to put behind me. Yeah. Um, Is there someone in your life that believed in you? There have been a lot of people who believed in me. I think that um, my parents believed in me sometimes, sometimes not, and that was not always helpful. I think that my daughter, from the time she was very young, was a big cheerleader of mine, looked up to me, viewed me as a role model and an inspiration. I think she says that often now, and that's actually very helpful in the past several years. Um, I think the person who has been with me at the start of my firm, Jessica Mazio, who runs our firm from the business side, has been a big supporter and backer of mine as well. I think uh, the man I live with now, Craig, is also my best cheerleader also. Uh, So I have a good uh, group of friends and family that have supported me. And actually, I've had many male lawyers particularly since I started my firm, being stunningly supportive of me. Mm. And a lot of people think that that's not the case, but a lot of men have helped me, referred clients to me, recommended me, nominated me for things. So there's, there's quite a big cadre of men who've also supported me. Do you think it's different today? So you've, you know, you've been at this for, for many years, and we all know that there's, there's this awareness today of, of the importance and the value of having more women. Um, whether it's in C-suites, on boards, um, in policy-making roles. What has your experience been as far as how far we've come? Because I think everyone has a different perspective. I think we've come some distance, but I think we're very far from being where we need to be. What I mean by that is, of course, you look around and there are many more women running law firms in general counsel offices, on the benches, judges, Uh, teaching at law schools and the like, but you still see more women dropping out earlier from the highest possible tracks than you see men dropping out. And a really sort of interesting and ironic example today is, as you know, this is a complete coincidence, but today happens to be a day that the law school, the dean at Penn Law School, Dean Ruger, is hosting the Dean's Council of Penn Law Women. Happen to be go- happens to be going on today. And the capstone tonight is that Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg is speaking at the Constitution Center and uh, attendees of the Council for Penn Law Women as well as other guests will be hearing her. And so I've attended the first part of the day at Penn Law School. I'm missing the trip to the museum in between, but I'm happy to be here <laughs> instead. But we just had a conversation all day about these issues and a particularly motivating and inspirational conversation at lunch led by recent law grads and law students. And they were all asking these same question, and they were all basically asking about how how did we manage how hard it was to be mothers and raise children and also have our careers. And a lot of very accomplished women were in the room, and the, the theme was the same. You, you can't have it all at the same mm. time. And, and to the extent we were sold that message that you could have it all, that that's not really a fair message or fair expectation to have. So women have made great strides during my 36 years in the practice, and 
in business and across the board, just like you have a show about women, that's progress too. But still women are leaving professional tracks, not just the law, but business, technology, finance, much sooner and more frequently than men are. And that's something that, that we have to still deal with. Mm-hmm. And they're leaving for what reasons? Uh, well, unfortunately, I think some people leave because of the issues raised by the Me Too movement, which I think is mm. no, just, I, th- I think it's beginning. I think there's so many more stories that are going to come out. A lot of people leave because they're, they're bearing more of the responsibilities of the rest of their life than maybe their partner is, whatever the situation is. So they're t- whether that's something they've worked out with their partner or not, women tend to have more responsibilities for child care, for parent care, for caring for people around them. And those responsibilities compete with your professional responsibilities. They do. So, And, and still, I think, for the most part, more women are bearing those personal responsibilities. Mm. There's such irony in that, I think, because so those characteristics that women have naturally um, that pull us away from, you know, the work – is also wonderful characteristics for the work world, right? So I think we have to figure out how do we balance that? Well, particularly for the kind of work I do, and I would say it appears to me for the kind of work you do, it, it, you have to be a good listener, you have to be paying attention, you have to have a, a nurturing quality to do what either one of us does, for you to elicit the kinds of information you want to elicit and to have people be candid with you. you you have to convey a certain quality of caring for them when you're sitting across from them uh, at the table, as, as we are now. Yeah. Um, and for what we do, when you're counseling someone, it's, they're usually dealing with their lawyer about something that's not positive. It's rare someone's with a lawyer for a good reason. Right. You know, they're not positive. celebrating. Yeah, not usually, <laughs> no. So um, you you have to you know be able to read the, the signs, see how they're really feeling, be responsive to how they're feeling. So those are qualities that people often associate with women. And I think if you're a really good advisor as a lawyer, you have to be a good nurturer because you need to do more than just tell them what the law says or doesn't say. You have to really listen to what's bothering them and and take care of them, too, to a certain extent. Yeah, if you want to influence mm-hmm. something, you know, in them. Um, you, I have a quote here that you said, everything we do at the firm ensures women do not have to choose between thriving in their careers and having a fulfilling personal life. Let's talk about your firm and and why it's different and in what ways do you do that? Okay, well, uh, as you know, most of the people at my firm are women, not all, but most are women, and many of them, many of the women who have worked with me in the past eight years have had children while they work with me. Historically, what I observed in other settings that I've worked in and what I hear from my peers everywhere is that women often feel that if they take time off to deal with family matters, whether it's an extended maternity leave or they take time off to deal with a doctor's appointment or a school play, that it's not only a perception that they're not committed to their career, but sometimes it's even a perception that they're not good at what they do, which is a whole different matter. Mm. And many, many women have conveyed to me that they have experienced that. And they also have conveyed to me that if a male colleague takes time off to take a kid to a doctor or to go to a school play, that 
colleague has been saluted as a hero. <laughs> so, I, I, and and I've certainly seen that happen. I have to say, I haven't seen it recently, but I have seen that. Mm-hmm. And and so that's something we try to deal with. We try to make sure that people don't ever feel that if they need to take time to deal with their life, that it's in any way an indication that they're not committed to their career or they're not good at what they do, because those two things are not the case. Uh, And that's one thing. In addition, we have a collaborative culture. Many uh, law firms and professional service firms have um, a compensation system that's based on rainmaking. People are rewarded financially and promoted uh, to some extent, if not a large extent, on how much they generate business uh, in contrast with how much substantive work they do. And often rainmakers in various institutions are or heralded as stars, and um, people compete and fight over who's going to get credit for the rainmaking. So we don't do um, origination credit or attribution for rainmaking in the way that a lot of uh, settings do, so that our lawyers are not competing with one another to get credit when a new matter gets brought in. And that way we encourage people to work more as a team to attract work and to serve work rather than feeling like they're in competition with one Mm. another as to who's going to bring in a particular client. Is that highly unusual to to work like that? Oh, yes, it is. It's unusual. (laughs) For for our profession, it's unusual. Um, The origination credit issue is one that I think a lot of women have struggled with because uh, generating work is very hard to do. Yeah, and it would seem to me to be very beneficial to feel more like a team, you know, we're all in this together kind of a thing, than have attorneys within a firm competing against each other. Uh, you would think so. Yeah. I wonder if it, you know, you may be leading the way in doing it this way and hopefully. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I yeah. don't know. I think yeah. it's hard to convince people who are already really good at generating business. This, this is, is true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't want to stop doing what I'm doing well. Right. They're, they're for, they would be forfeiting something potentially. Right. Um, you're an active member of a lot of organizations, various organizations, um, for female attorneys. And I'm wondering what types of initiatives are you focusing on or most like to see take place this year, next year? Uh, well, we're involved as a firm with NAMWOLF, which is the National Association of Minority and Women-Owned Law Firms, which started about 10, 12 years ago. And when we joined in the beginning of 2011, there were maybe 80 law firms around the country, and now there's probably twice that. And uh, that initiative deals with partnering between the largest companies in the country and women and minority-owned law firms, whereby these companies commit to give a certain amount of legal work to women and minority-owned firms. And that has been working increasingly well over the past decade. We've certainly ourselves benefited from our membership in that, and I'd like to obviously see that continue. On a on sort of a, another end of the spectrum, there's something called LCLD, which is the Leadership Council for Legal Diversity, which I believe was started by the, the then General Counsel of Microsoft. And that is a collaboration largely between also some of the biggest companies in the country, but the biggest law firms in the country that are not principally women or minority-owned. And there's a small cadre of smaller women and minority-owned firms that also participate. And that organization is designed to promote and enhance opportunities for women and minority lawyers in all kinds of legal jobs across the spectrum, not just where they have ownership of the firms. And that has a lot to do with training and retaining women and minorities in big institutions, Mm. uh, which has always been a, a challenge. And then finally, 
probably my personal favorite at the moment is women own law. And uh, I want to give a shout out to Nicole Galley, who's a lawyer here, who started women own law because there never was, amazingly, there never was a women own law type organization. Women own law is an organization of law firms owned by women and other people who want to support that. Um, it started in Philadelphia and has grown and is in many, many cities across the country in just a year. And that organization, unlike some of the others, doesn't have threshold financial or other requirements that make it impenetrable to very small women-owned law firms. So if you are a woman lawyer who started your own firm and it's just you, mm. you can easily participate in women-owned law and get the benefits, the full benefits, which you might not be eligible for membership in the other organizations I talked about. And as a result, because there's more small law firms, I think there's more opportunity for women to support one another and refer business to one another mm. and uh, to help one another start law firms. So what I'd like to see happen is more and more efforts and support from big law firms and from corporations in supporting smaller law firms started by women and minorities by partnering with them on projects, by referring work to them, by opening their doors for tra to participate in joint training and that sort of thing. Do you happen to know any of this, the statistics or numbers about um, young women going into law today versus years ago? You know, um, I can say that for many law schools, the number of new students is 50% female, sometimes higher, uh, which it wasn't historically uh, that high. So I think uh, in the next several years, more women will graduate from law school than men. Okay, and I is that... 50% women, and what what would you say it was even 10 years ago? I, I don't Two? know, but okay. I know that my class, which was a very odd class historically, was 50% female, and it started, my class started in 1978 at Penn Law School, but that was unheard of. Okay, and I it was don't think Because I've heard that statistic before. Yeah. yeah. I don't think that, that it was anywhere near that number before my class or after my class until more recently but I think it's pretty close to 50%, if not higher, for many law schools right now. Um, I've read a lot about you, obviously, to prepare for today, and um, you've been described more often as strong, ambitious, and compassionate um, as a female leader. Um, were you always strong, ambitious. I would say compassionate, yes, that's in. That's obviously in you, but I want to talk about the, those parts of you that really, again, allow you to um, continue to be successful in a very competitive industry um, and being strong and, and ambitious is kind of the flip side of compassionate. Were you always that person? Um, I don't know, but you know, as I said earlier, I often felt like the Gemini twins, like there's two sides of me competing. And I think that's the qualities you've just said, assuming that's how people perceive me, are reflective of the fact that I, I have two very strong sides of me that have always been competing. I have memories of feeling that those two sides competing as young as three and four years old. Wow. Um, I remember being torn between feeling like I had an, an intellectual drive, uh, a, a need to learn, and a need to, to master certain things that were, at, particularly when I was a child, really in the male domain, it seemed to me, 
but on the other hand, I was drawn to the softer side of things. So uh, a really funny example of that is I remember when I was three years old, my mother took, sent me to ballet and tap classes, and you had to have these little leotard outfits, and your name had to be embroidered on the upper right side so that the teacher would know your name. She could read your name on your ballet outfit and call your name. And I remember going to the first class, and everybody had these beautiful embroidered names with flowers around them, and mine was just not beautiful. <laughs> wasn't my mother's thing. I'll just was it a piece of tape? With it, wasn't, it just wasn't. It wasn't, it wasn't beautiful. It, it wasn't okay. beautiful. So I learned, started to learn how to embroider when I was seven years old, and I still do it now. So because I wanted to have a nice name on my leotard, so that that that's sort of the sort of softer side. But on the other hand, I also remember really pushing, pushing, pushing my mother. At the same point, I can picture myself in my little dance outfit on the living room floor, pushing my mother to teach me how to write the alphabet, how to write my name, how to write numbers. And I remember her being kind of like annoyed already. I was driving her crazy. <laughs> but I, so here I am, I wanted this perfect girly little beautifully embroidered name on my ballet outfit, but I wanted to be able to do the whole, out, write the whole alphabet and write my name and write the numbers. And I, and throughout my life, I remember feeling at various points that um, dichotomy and having challenging time reconciling those mm. two sides. So um, I think there were words people used to describe me that would be not as nice as strong and ambitious, but more <laughs> have more negative connotation. Um, but I've always felt a very strong push to, to fully push my mind and challenge how I think about things and really figure things out. It's always been in there, but on the other hand, you know, I want that flowery name on my leotard <laughs> so uh, do you, so I I love asking this question I think um, women and men who are driven so you're always you know seeking and and wanting to learn and accomplish um, sometimes it's to prove to someone to ourselves, or just we love the excitement of the challenge what what is that for you I think it's necessity I think the thing that motivated me the most was a sense of necessity and maybe duty. So I think it was feeling that my parents were so capable. They really both were. They were very intelligent. My father in particular was very intellectual, but he had no chance. And I felt a lot of responsibility to make up for that. And if I had to say the single thing that drives me the most that motivated me the most, that um, inspired me the most, it was a feeling that I had to not squander mm. my abilities because I had the chance to make the most of them and he didn't. Mm. And I do think that is the single thing that marks me the most, that I grew up in a home with a Holocaust survivor parent. Mm. You were given an opportunity. Yeah, that's really powerful. Um, to, if. If there's a young girl listening who perhaps is contemplating law school, um, what would you be the top of mind for, for advice for her in finding her um, not only, you know, uh, going to law school, but what area of law? The law is so expansive. And we should talk about, you know, what clients you specifically work with, what areas of law are your specialty. Um, but what would you say to a young girl um, who might be listening that's looking for advice? Um, well, you may or may not know that I certainly didn't encourage my daughter to go to law school, <laughs> nor did her father, who's also a lawyer. 
Um, I would say if someone thinks they want to go to law school, they should definitely not go straight from college, which is what I did. I graduated from Penn Law School. I was 23. That's way, way, way too young. Okay. I think uh, if you're going to go to law school, you should definitely work several years at something else and ideally at something that where you think you might want to practice law related to that industry or that mm -hmm. business to get a feel for what's going on. I think if you're a little more mature and experienced, it will be a less painful experience. Law school is very hard. Uh, I also think you'll have a better idea of what you want to do. I also don't think you have any idea what you want to do till you actually get there mm -hmm. because once you're exposed to a lot of different things, you may find that what you thought you wanted to do was in one place and what you actually want to do is another. Uh, it's sort of ironic because I think when I first planned on going to law school, I thought I would be a labor and employment lawyer principally because my father had been in a union and he'd gotten a lot of benefits from being in the union. So I was leaning in that direction. Well, I've, I've never been a labor lawyer, never been a labor lawyer certainly from the union point of view. And to the extent I've had any exposure to that kind of work it would have been from the employer point of view, which is the opposite of where I would have expected. Uh, so, however, in some ways it's come full circle because I've historically been a commercial litigator representing businesses when they get sued and advising them on how to avoid lawsuits in the future. But increasingly in the past couple of years, I have represented privately owned businesses, high-level executives, law firm partners, partners in other businesses in changing their work situation in negotiating either to change substantially the terms of what they're doing or to, to negotiate their exit from where they are. Mm. And that's come so it's come back around to the employment that's right. space. That is that is yeah, employment. Um, so really it's a you need to explore first, right? I think that's the advantage of some of these universities that have the co-ops where the kids are able to go out and work a little bit and, and really we have such a different perception of what a job is. Mm -hmm when we uh, we haven't actually done it. Yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. Um, listen, I thank you so much, Fran, for, for coming to join me today, especially on, on a very busy day. I, I'm thinking of tagging along with you to the Constitution <laughs> Center. Um, but I wish you continued success. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. That's it, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch. Be sure to check out our website at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. Have a great week. <laughs>